For another perspective on new clinical research developments in breast cancer, I met with Dr. Julie Graylow, who began our conversation by discussing the critical issue of tissue biomarker assays. We certainly don't know the best way to test for HER2 or ER at this point, and I think the data is emerging from some of our trials where we're collecting samples and comparing local results to central laboratory testing that there are lots of factors that can affect this. And with respect to estrogen receptor, for example, the value of ER, not just positive-negative, but the percentage of cell staining, the intensity of the stain, all of that matters. And I do think we're starting to see some trials sort out a low ER versus a high ER, when they're all positive, but a lower ER expression. We tend to report in the ALRED scoring system at our institution and think that's much more reflective. If I have a patient with really lots of cell staining with a high intensity, I'm much more likely to be inclined to omit chemo, for example, go with strong endocrine therapy, versus those that are more borderline. I'll still add the endocrine agent, but I'm not going to be relying on it as a sole agent. With HER2, the thing we're using it mostly for right now is predicting response to trastuzumab, as opposed to before trastuzumab was around when we were using it as a prognostic factor. And and with respect to a surgical perspective, I think we have to be very cognizant of the fact that fixation is critical in any of this, and that if you don't get your sample in fixative soon, and if you don't fix it for an appropriate amount of time, all bets are off. And so that will entirely mess up your ER staining, your HER2 staining, and then we don't know how to treat the patient. We have- actually had a closed roundtable discussion recently and spent the entire day talking about tissue biomarkers in breast cancer, mainly HER2 and ER. And of course, these issues that you just mentioned came out. Craig Allred was one Mm -hmm. of the people there. Of course, he was the person I think who was most vocal about ER being a problem in the past. And we brought up this and I kept pushing to, well, what does this mean to docs in practice? So, for example, the fixation thing. One of the things, for example, that he talked about was not just getting it fixed, but getting it sliced. And that there was actually data showing that people who get operated on a Friday have lower mm-hmm. ERs than people getting up because it was put in fixative, but it wasn't sliced yep. so, the way I understood it. So, I mean, what do you say to a surgeon? Talk to your pathologist and see what they're doing? It's a partnership that has to exist between the surgeon and the pathologist and then the medical oncologist. The ASCO-CAP guidelines for her, too, actually indicate you should report how much time it was in fixative, et cetera, all of that. We're starting to do that locally. We think it's important. It actually doesn't stress the issue, which I agree with that Craig brought up, about slicing it. If it's a core, it's irrelevant. You know, the the fixative will get in. If it's a big mastectomy, specimen or a big lumpectomy specimen, the formalin's not going to get to the middle of that in any rapid amount of time. And so that's relevant, and that is not something that we're reporting at this point in time. I wrote a piece where I tried to make the argument that this is the most important thing that a surgeon can do. Yes, we need local control, we need good surgery, but you're talking about therapies that have the potential to reduce relapse rate by 50%, each one of these. These are major things to get wrong. Absolutely. It could absolutely impact the patient's outcome. So how can a surgeon be as assured as possible that the patient's tumor is getting assayed correctly? 
I think that they need to be talking with the pathologist, knowing when it's getting infixative, stressing, especially when it's late in the day, especially when it's late on a Friday, when there's a big gap if it doesn't get put in. I think that the surgeons do need to get involved with talking to the pathologist, making sure the specimen gets put in fixative and that it's put in, as you mentioned, in smaller pieces so that the fixative can truly do its work. What about the execution once it's done? I mean, to me, it's kind of weird that every hospital is doing IHC for ER and IHC for HER2, which usually is the first thing that's done, as opposed to some central laboratory that we can really get huge data. And there are big laboratories like that. A lot of this work is being done individually in small hospitals. I think that it does take a certain amount of volume to get reproducibility. I'm not sure that I'm ready to say that only a couple big labs can do it right. I think that breast cancer is common and that there are plenty of centers which have enough cases. I think it's really critical with the estrogen and progesterone receptor when you've got a normal breast tissue in the sample, so you've got a control that should be positive, that your reporting is the normal breast epithelium staining because if you're reporting an estrogen receptor negative sample and yet the normal breast epithelium in the sample is also negative, I think all bets are off. You got to do it again, you know, and we're not reporting all these things. Another thing that came out at the roundtable was the question of using RT-PCR as a way to measure HER2 and ER. And of course, already the Oncotype DX assay is being utilized using that technique. And in fact, now they are reporting quantitative ER and HER2. What do you think about that? Are you looking at those numbers? And where do you think that's heading? Absolutely. When I get my recurrent score assay back, I'm looking at that. Of course, in general, I'm not sending the 21 gene recurrence score assay, the Oncotype DX, on known HER2 positive patients because I think the data would suggest that most of them are in the high-risk zone and I'm going to give trastuzumab anyway. So what I have a lot of experience with now is looking at it in patients that I already thought were HER2 negative and Mm -hmm. to date I haven't seen a report back to me where it was HER2 positive. I don't have any experience looking at that data in those that we're calling HER2 positive. So while we're talking about Oncotype, I want to throw out to you a couple of numbers that came out of a patterns of care study that we just did that I thought were really interesting. We asked medical oncologists, have you sent the ocotype in a patient with a node positive tumor? Mm -hmm. So it's now been exactly a year since those data were presented. What fraction of oncologists do you think have done it? 70%. Well, it's actually 50%, which I thought was pretty high. (laughs) Uh That's a pretty quick uptake. And then we asked them how many and it's been usually up to five, uh-huh. you know, not, not like a dozens, lot. you know, very selective about that. In comparison to what happened when the archetype was first presented, I think five or six years ago with that, very, where the whole first year nobody did right. anything, the right. second year not too much. Now people are kind of tuned into it and starting to think about it. Where are you right now in terms of that particular provocative question, which, and I guess we're going to see some more data on that at this meeting coming out of the ATAC trial. I got sort of a little preview of that off the record. It sounds like it's going to be really interesting. But where are we right now in terms of oncotype in patients with no positive tumors? 
we're finalizing the 8814 manuscript right. with the 21 gene recurrence core assay. and That was the paper presented last year, the SWOT study. That was what we presented last year. Right. So we'll have much more detail as the paper comes out. We're just in the very final editing stages of that. So I guess I will just start my answer with the statement that I think that there are plenty of node-positive patients that don't benefit from chemo, either because they're very endocrine-responsive, or because they're very chemo-resistant. And so even if they have an elevated relapse rate, they're still resistant to chemo, and giving the chemo just gives you toxicity. And I think it's that group with the low recurrence score that falls in that category. What to do with intermediates, I'm not sure. So I do not believe it is standard of care to order the 21-gene recurrence score on the node positives, and SWOG and the intergroup are working on the design of a trial for node-positive patients who have a low-to-intermediate recurrence score. We're trying to figure out where the intermediate will fall, what number we'll call it. But a group that we're not sure if they benefit from chemo or not, so the first question will be a randomization to chemo or not, and we'll allow a bunch of different chemo. But the second randomization would be to a biologic Uh, So a group that we think is going to be more chemo-resistant, we're not sure if chemo will add, but they have a higher risk of recurrence than the node-negative group. And so let's try to be smart about adding a biologic and a biologic that augments endocrine therapy because, of course, all of these people are ER positive. So what we're looking at right now is an mTOR inhibitor, potentially. We're still trying to define the biologic. But I think that it's really important that we move toward a prospective randomized trial and not just stop at the chemo or not question, but look to see ways to make that endocrine therapy potentially better in a group that we know are ER positive. If I have a patient with a little bit of disease in a node, I don't have any problem ordering the 21 gene recurrence score. I've had a patient with slightly less than two millimeters, but a couple nodes that I've sent it on just to try to help make the decision about the value of adding chemo or not. So here's another patterns of care. Yeah. Okay. 70-year-old woman in good health, but 70, doesn't want chemo. She doesn't really need it. 0.8 centimeter tumor, but three positive nodes. Mm Mm-hmm. The surgeon has already sent the oncotype, and it's five. It's low. Mm-hmm. What would you do with a woman like that? Or how would you present options to her, I guess I should say? Uh, five is a really low <laughs> recurrence score. I mean, the data would really suggest that she's getting no benefit from the biology of her tumor. She's getting no benefit from chemo. So although those three nodes would bump her up in terms of recurrence, I think what I would say to her is a perfectly healthy 70-year-old in the past with three positive nodes, we'd at least talk about chemo. And in this era, could we give a TC, docetaxel cyclophosphamide regimen or something? Maybe, you know, that we don't need the anthracycline. We can get around the cardiac toxicity. But her biology now is not going to support giving the chemo. And if she's already coming to me saying, I would really like to not get chemo, I would say, let's try to maximize your endocrine therapy. And in that patient, I would feel quite comfortable giving her good endocrine therapy. I would favor an aromatase inhibitor over tamoxifen. And we'll talk about that when we get to adjuvant therapy of HER2-positive tumors. But 
Before we do that, I have to get back to the issue of bisphosphonates and your study, your SWOG study, and also what I'm calling the paper of the year, which was Mike Nance's presentation at the ASCO meeting of the use of zolandronic acid as adjuvant therapy. The Austrian Breast Cancer Study Group 12, the ABCSG 12 study that was presented in the ASCO plenary session, it was a study of endocrine therapy in premenopausal women, 1,800 premenopausal women who all had their ovaries shut down with an LHRI analog. It were randomized to tamoxifen versus an aromatase inhibitor. That was neutral. There was no benefit for the AI over TAM, which is important to know. There was a second randomization to zoledronic acid given just four milligrams twice a year for three years or not. And it was powered to look at disease-free survival for both the endocrine question and the bisphosphonate question. And the surprise was that the bisphosphonate question was positive. Just six doses over three years of zoledronic acid reduced recurrences or events by about 36%. And there was a breakdown shown of the distant events that were impacted. And intriguingly, although not powered to answer the question, it looked like even local recurrences and contralateral breast cancers might be decreased. And I urged a strong caution about over-interpreting that when, for example, contralateral breast cancers were 20 versus 10 events total in a study of 1,800 women. We need to get more events to be able to comment on that. But at least a hint that maybe there is some direct anti-tumor activity, which there is is preclinical data that supports that. The ongoing intergroup NSABP trial starts with the quote-unquote standard arm of Clodronate because we took the European data. The FDA allowed us, even though That's we... That's your d- study, I should mention. Yeah. We didn't have the results of the prior NSABP Clodronate versus placebo study at the time we needed to design this study. But the FDA said, well, there's reason to believe Clodronate could be the winner in NSABP B34, which we still haven't seen the data on. And so we'll let you use that as your standard arm. We won't make you redo a placebo. So we used Clodronate, and we're comparing it to two more potent aminobisphosphonates. Clodronate is a non-aminobisphosphonate, which may have different impact, especially with the direct anti-tumor effect. And so abandronate, but given at a BOMET kind of dosing of abandronate, not an osteoporosis dosing. And then zoledronic acid given in a a modification of a BOMET dosing where we're giving it monthly for six months and then we go to quarterly. And all three of these arms go out for three years. So that's the ongoing study. It's 4,500 patients and we're accruing like crazy since ASCO, over 200 patients a month. So we'll meet accrual within a year. Well, Uh, because everybody gets a bisphosphonate. Everybody gets a bisphosphonate. So after ASCO, when we had this intriguing data, but in a subset of premenopausal, ER-positive women not getting chemo. It's hard to extrapolate from that and say all women will benefit. So I think what the country and Canada has joined in on this too, what we're doing is we're saying we're not sure, short of that group, who benefits. So let's put them on study and everybody gets a bisphosphonate. What is fascinating is a little hypothesis-generating abstract that got added on. There were about 200 patients in the Azure trial that got preoperative chemotherapy. And on that trial, you could enroll at the time you started your chemo. You didn't need to have had your surgery. So they had 200 patients, 100 in each arm, who got chemo and had simultaneous monthly zoledronic acid 
in half of them and not in pre-op. half pre-op. Wow. And so they have the surgery results. And the end point of that, they looked at residual invasive disease in the breast. PCR was another end point. But the primary end point was how much invasive disease was left in the breast. And what they will show is, and it depends on if you look at the data uncorrected or corrected for multiple factors like ER status imbalance and things like that. But I think with the multivariate corrections and everything, there was about 40 millimeters of residual tumor on average in the group that didn't get zoledronic acid. These were big tumors to start with. And it was slightly under 30 millimeters if they had zoledronic acid added. The PCR rates were low in general. You could get any chemo, remember, in this study. But they They were something like 6%, and don't quote me exactly, but about 6% in the group that didn't get zoledronic acid added to the chemo and about 12% in the group that did. And that had a p-value of about 0.05 for the PCR. So this was not pre-planned. This is a look at a small subset of the Azure trial, but I think it does suggest a direct effect on the tumor of zoledronic acid in the breast, or at least we need to further explore that. Yeah, it sounds a little soft to me. I mean, it's 200 patients, 30 versus 40 percent. I mean, maybe, but... 30 versus 40 millimeters oh, 30 in, versus in terms 40 of residual millimeters. size. Okay. I agree with you. This is not definitive. But it is hypothesis generating. And if you believe from the ABCSG12 data that 20 versus 10 contralateral breast cancers is real, you might say, well, this would further support that. So what we're going to do is the UK and then I've been working on a trial design as well. We're going to do this in a powered fashion with a true randomization in the pre-op setting. A pre-op study? A pre-op study with a standard backbone of chemo, not a mix of a bunch Mm, of different chemo. And then add zoledronic acid or not. The preclinical data suggests it might be best to give it the next day after Hmm. you give your cytotoxic chemo. And we might even look at, for example, an interesting drug like denosumab in this setting, Hmm. which may have some direct anti-tumor effects separate from its bone effect. So I totally agree this doesn't support that we should change our practice, Neil. But it is really, in my mind, the first data in humans that is pushing me over to thinking there may be a direct anti-tumor effect of zoledronic acid. Well, at a more practical level, and now it's really a concern. I guess there's no other study out there. Anything else that might be reporting soon? Well, the NSABP B34, which was clodronate versus placebo, is probably going to take a couple years to report still. They just had such a low-risk group that they're not having events, and the analysis is event-driven. There is another trial of abandronate versus control. It's in combination with the chemotherapy question that's being done over in Europe as well. I don't think that's close to reporting, though. So I'm thinking, I mean, this is a maybe a topic that ought to be talked about in a tumor board. So you have the oncologists and the surgeons, I guess, talking about this. But I mean, the thing is, at least if you look at the way zoledronic acid was given the Austrian study, they had very little downside. They saw... I think no confirmed cases of osteonecrosis of the jaw. I know a few have been seen in some of these trials. I guess you've seen a few in your study. We now have two documented and right. one suspected, but it's still an event rate of less than 0.4%. So, you know, you've got a therapy that really has pretty little downside. Yes, there's one study, but there were 36% fewer recurrences. Are you discussing this with your patients? Are you actually doing it outside? I know you're trying to put everybody on your study, but if they can't go on the study, will you offer it outside a trial? 
Well, the nice thing about 0307 is it doesn't have a lot of exclusion. We allow co-enrollment yeah. on trials, et cetera. I have a couple of premenopausal ER-positive patients who, for a variety of reasons, some of them live outside of the U.S. and see me for second opinion kind of support. I have recommended it, and I've recommended the twice-a-year dosing. I think what we're going to struggle with is when we see the Azure results. I'm going to bet they're positive. Although it might be a little bit more muted in a group of patients getting chemo at etc. I'll just say that it might not be the 36% reduction. But when we see those results, I think what we're going to struggle with is, is the best way to give it every six months? Or will it be a more intensive, at least start out more similar to as if you had bone mets? Because what we're hypothesizing is the main effect here will be to inhibit the tumor cell's ability to kind of set itself up in the bone, and you're trying to make the bone a less desirable reservoir for those cells and for the recurrence. And so giving more intensive dosing at the time of diagnosis, as if you're treating a bone met, and then going out to less intensive dosing might be better, but it might not. So we're going to struggle with, when we see those results, can we extrapolate back to the twice-a-year dosing? Or do we have to, in everybody except premenopausal ER positive, only getting endocrine therapy, do we have to give more intensive? Let's finish out our discussion by providing an update on really the two targeted therapies that have led the way in breast cancer. We've already talked a little bit about it in terms of hormone therapy and anti-HER2 therapy. Can you talk about what's happened? I think most surgeons know the basic story in terms of the adjuvant trastuzumab trials, but maybe provide an update of what we've learned, let's say, over the past year about that whole issue and also where things are heading in terms of new research questions in these patients. Well, I think that the adjuvant data is just holding up as we have longer-term analyses and, fascinatingly, holding up despite the fact that, for example, in our North American trials, once we unblinded the study because we had the results, there were patients who got trastuzumab who had been in the non-trastuzumab arms. Really? And yes. If they were within X number of months of finishing their chemo, we gave it to them free on the study. And then there was another group that got it even if they might have been off chemo for a year or two. And still the survival benefit and the relapse-free survival benefit is holding up despite the fact that now some of the control group did get trastuzumab. What we're waiting for are some studies looking at the duration of the trastuzumab. For our big studies, we generally picked a year for no good reason. We said, well, it might act a little bit more like endocrine therapy, which we give for five years, than it acts like chemo, so let's split the difference and say a year, but not five years. And the HERA trial looked at one versus two years of trastuzumab. We haven't seen the reporting on that. We've had lots of interim analyses, though, so if there was a whopping difference, it would have been reported already. doesn't mean there can't be a small difference. Various other countries have initiated efforts to look at less than a year. So we have a French study, which has accrued quite well, of six months versus a year. I've heard about a couple trials of three months versus a year. So we're waiting for the reporting on that. We've had lots of data on the cardiac safety. We certainly are intrigued by a non-anthracycline regimen. And again, our patterns of care studies are showing that a lot of docs are doing that now. Yeah. We're partnering with multiple other centers in a trial for node-negative smaller HER2-positive tumors of giving just paclitaxel with trastuzumab. Speaking of that, mm-hmm. I have hot in my hands another mm-hmm. pattern. These are things we just got back today, so I'm kind of oh, excited. Great. Yeah, this is just right off the press. So here's the case. Again, patterns of care that we sent out to oncologists, 0.4 centimeter 
tumor. Okay. 37 years old is the patient. ERPR negative, HER2 positive, node negative. So maybe you can predict what the doc said they would do with a patient like that, and what would you do? Well, I don't have any hormone options in this case, and I really think if I'm going to give trastuzumab that there's real synergy with chemo. I don't generally just give trastuzumab. I'm going to say the woman's age comes into play here. She's in her 30s, and that really worries me, and she's got lots of years to relapse. This really does get back to the whole the Oncotype DX question, mm-hmm. too, is I am sure that it is a combination of biology and stage, and it's not one or the other. So this woman's really low stage, but she's bad biology. So I would offer her a chemotherapy, trastuzumab combination, and if she met criteria for our paclitaxel trastuzumab trial, I think that's what I would prefer to do because I minimize the heart toxicity. But I could also feel justified going more aggressively. It's interesting, too, because I've been hearing from investigators, this is why we put this case in there, mm-hmm. that 0.5 was going to be the cutoff. Mm-hmm. So we deliberately made it one uh-huh. in a millimeter below that. And we actually found 61% of docs would do exactly what you would do. Right, yeah. So although, again, 39% would not use mm-hmm. systemic therapy in a patient like that. What do we know about the untreated prognosis of patients with these kinds of tumors? I don't think we've got trials where we've collected the data on them. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I guess we've seen over and over that HER2 positivity increases the rate of relapse. A lot of people use 50%. I don't know. but uh, And ERPR negativity right. in this case increases it. I bet you she had a high grade on top of all that. Moderately you know. differentiated oh, was, is what uh-huh. it was. So, and actually by far... The most common therapy was a non-anthracycline regimen. As a matter of fact, mainly the so-called TCH regimen, mm-hmm. which was studied in the clinical trial. And then there were also a bunch of people who used another sort of kind of TCH, which is using cyclophosphamide instead of the carboplatin, but very little anthracyclines for a patient like that. Any other thoughts about this issue in terms of, in general, the patient with a node-negative HER2-positive tumor? Well, I think they were included in some of the studies in the adjuvant setting and had, if you look at forest plots, equal magnitude of benefit. Overall, they had less recurrence, but they still had reasonable recurrence. So I think it comes down to somehow we're going to have to factor in the biology here. And we know I've had patients with microinvasion at diagnosis who six years later I'm seeing because of their distant meds. I mean, We have to sort out which tumors go and spread early on. And then I've also had patients with neglected cancers who come to me and say, oh, yeah, I knew the lump was there four years ago. Now, you know, it's fungating out of the breast. And I scan them from head to toe. They don't have any distant disease. Are you positive, though? Not usually. But it gets to the point of when does the cancer spread? And I don't think we understand that very well. But the higher grade, more aggressive Hormone receptor negative, HER2 positive, I think, spread sooner. So you already gave me an idea for the next patterns of care, which is to take this and then draw it out over age, Mm -hmm. which is always a hot button Mm -hmm. for people. So same exact case, 0.4 centimeters, 65 years old. Yeah. Well, I think at 65... You're still uh, okay? 
with chemo, treating her? Chemo, yeah, especially a non-anthracycline right, containing regimen. Right. I, I would lay it out in front of the patient, and I'd certainly base it on her comorbidities. And although really I think that the trastuzumab cardiomyopathy is markedly different from anthracycline-induced cardiomyopathy, it seems to be more manageable and reversible and all of that, and certainly more treatable. I would, if this were an older patient that had a lot of cardiac problems, I would step back a little bit. It's Especially if point you know four millimeters. But you know it's really interesting because there's virtually nobody picking trastuzumab without chemo. So this whole concept of the synergy, even though we haven't really tested trastuzumab alone as adjuvant therapy, people just seem to gravitate towards giving chemo anyhow. Yeah, well, we're working, not that it impacts this case, but we're working in SWOG on a trial that will need collaboration with other groups and internationally probably on an endocrine HER2-targeted therapy combination. So so in a HER2-positive, ER-positive right. group, can we avoid the chemo and still get good results? Well, that was the other thing I was going to ask you. If you take this same 37 or 65-year-old and make it ERPR positive, would that change your thoughts on this? Or you still would go ahead with chemo trastuzumab? Yeah, but I think in an older patient, I right. might back off right. sooner. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Let's finish out just chatting briefly about hormonal therapy. And one of the things that I was curious about your thoughts are is the issue of the long-term treatment between five and 10 years beyond. We're seeing trials looking at this question, but docs still have to make decisions. And again, we had some more patterns of care data. I'll throw back out to you about this. But what's your take on what we've learned over the last few years about the long-term history of ER-positive disease and the potential to intervene and make a difference way down the line? Well, I think it's really clear that the ER-positive population, which in the first five years has a somewhat lower risk of relapse compared to the ER-negative, over time, you go out to 20 to 25 years, it's even now because the ER-positives have this constant small but real rate of relapse that goes on forever, and the ER negatives have a much higher rate of relapse in the short term and then much, much lower over time. So these ER positives who still at 20 years have some annual rate of relapse that's been the same for the last couple decades, they may still have benefit from prolonged endocrine therapy. I think that the NCI Canada MA17 trial certainly shows even a survival benefit in the node positive group for five years of letrozole after five years of tamoxifen. What we don't know is what happens... Which is really amazing when you think about it. You're doing an intervention, the randomization is five years after diagnosis, and you see a survival benefit. So those women still had active tumor out there somewhere that, by switching therapies, were impacted. We have a couple of ongoing studies now looking at after you finish five years of an aromatase inhibitor, whether you got any tamoxifen first or not, is five more years beneficial? It may be. And when I'm looking at my patient, and if she's not eligible for these trials, what I say is, let's figure out your risk of the toxicities that these are going to cause, because we certainly know they're going to impact the bone some. And whether or not they cause a statistical increase in cardiovascular events, there's certainly a subpopulation where the lipids really are affected by it. And so let's take a look at what we really think your risk of recurrence is that remains versus all your other risks for death and all. And 
So in a node-negative group, after they complete five years of an AI, it's not likely that I'm going to feel that the benefits outweigh the risks for continuing on. Patterns of care, 2.5 centimeter tumor, uh-huh. node-negative. Uh-huh. Would you, it's done well, no problems mm-hmm. with the AI at five years, continue or not? Off study, Off study, I probably wouldn't. And what about same kind of situation, node positive? Yeah, How do you approach I, that? I probably would. Another thing that we asked him, I'm curious what your thoughts were, was I was kind of curious with all the attention to the side effects and toxicities, particularly of the aromatase inhibitors, how many patients make it to five years on an AI, assuming they haven't had a relapse, who are okay, like this patient we just described. Mm-hmm. No arthralgias, no problems, taking it. I'll tell you what the docs in practice said, but first, what would you say? What fraction of patients on AIs, assuming they haven't had a relapse, can take it for five years, no major problem? Well, I think it's at least 20% who have significant mm-hmm. arthralgias and myalgias. The hot flashes and things I think most of my patients can deal with. So it might be, you know, 75% of patients You're who can make you it. You can predict the exact <laughs> 80%, you know. Uh-huh. So it's interesting with all the attention to these problems, you actually ask the docs and most people are actually getting through it. But then the other issue was this really, I thought, fascinating paper that just got published from the ATAC trial trying to correlate vasomotor symptoms and arthralgias with actually anti-tumor effect. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? No, I didn't see the paper. Oh, really? It was very amazing. Mm -hmm. And basically what they showed was that patients who had – did you hear Leslie Fallowfield? She brought that up this morning. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. What they showed was that the people who had the arthralgias and had problems – actually had fewer relapses, yeah, which well, is kind of... You know, it gets to the whole pharmacogenomics, right. and we know tamoxifen is metabolized, you know, in major part by CYP2D6, and in theory, we have an assay for it. Whether we think we should be using it or not is another question. But the three different aromatase inhibitors all have different enzymes that metabolize them that we don't know as well, we don't test for. And so, I mean, with the tamoxifen story, it was also true that the patients who had the symptoms who undoubtedly had more of the active endoxifene and 25-hydroxy tamoxifen, they did better. And, and so it may be that that's right. the case here. And we just don't, right now, we're not studying those enzymes. We don't know how to correlate it. And the women who do fine and are breezing through it actually don't have as much active drug, you know, in Right, maybe. Yeah, I, I thought it was amazing because coming out, you know, I was thinking about, for example, the issue, for example, in lung cancer and colon cancer of rash from EGFR inhibitors, mm-hmm. and it seems like that's correlated with the benefit they get. And this seemed like a similar kind of model. Mm-hmm. So I guess to be continued or determined. We definitely have to figure it out. One final question in terms of the future of endocrine therapy, particularly adjuvant therapy, in terms of new ideas are out there. One, you know, we haven't done that much in terms of combining hormonal therapies, although like the Austrian study that you described was, in a sense, that because it was ovarian suppression plus one of these other agents. But I've always been curious about the agent fulvestrant, you know, the estrogen receptor downregulator that's given by IM injection, and the theory that maybe that would synergize with an AI. And I know you guys in SWAG are looking at that. Can you talk about that and where you think it's heading? 
Right. Well, our design for our next big adjuvant trial that NCI Canada has had on the books for a while has been just that, aromatase inhibitor versus aromatase inhibitor plus fulvestrant. And we're waiting for data from two ongoing metastatic trials looking to just show that it's not harmful. Remember, the ATAC trial did combine tamoxifen with anastrozole and showed that arm was worse. So we do have to be careful before we jump into this group of potentially already cured patients that we're not doing harm. I think a problem with fulvestrant in the adjuvant setting is that it's intramuscular. Yep. And, you know, and if we're talking about going on for five years of coming in for IM injection, and it's not just a small little injection, it's not the kind of thing you can easily have people do themselves in the home. So I do think that that's a drawback. But I think it's worth testing if we have some interesting data in the metastatic setting. We're looking at other ways in the metastatic setting of overcoming aromatase inhibitor resistance. Some of the drugs we talked about earlier, even an interesting presentation looking at giving estradiol to overcome resistance and then, you know, reinduce sensitivity to aromatase inhibitors. And I think what we learn in the metastatic setting will probably start moving into the adjuvant setting. And I was just, you know, a few minutes ago, Matt Ellis at San Antonio, who's been, we've interviewed for this work, he's been talking about it over the last year, looking at diethylstilbestrol in the mm-hmm. metastatic setting. And I guess originally he pointed out in the presentation that the original study that I get 1981 <laughs> that led to the use of tamoxifen in metastatic disease actually compared it to DES and it was only the toxicity. Right. That was, the efficacy was the same as right. tamoxifen. So right. it's really interesting that maybe that's going to get recycled again. Well, remember, we have progestational agents that right. have activity too. And really, they got bumped out a bit because of their toxicities. So, you know, there's still, when we have metastatic patients who respond a long time to first line and then second line, we are actually, you know, in some cases trying to give estrogen and progesterone and in high doses, they seem to do much different things than in low doses. Yeah, I mean, there's so much activity in terms of the HER2 patients, which is only 20% of the population, right. and kind of be good to maybe focus a little bit more on the ER positive tumors and, you know, novel ideas. And I guess in HER2, you mentioned there's some encouraging data looking at bevacizumab along with trastuzumab that's being studied now mm-hmm. by the NSABP. You have the other anti-HER2 agent, lapatinib, and the other study that you're involved with with Alto. Kind of be cool if we could have some more creative ideas about hormone therapy. Yeah, it's a majority of our patients and a very important mechanism in many. It's what's driving those cells in a good proportion of those patients. And then you got the triple negative group that yeah. feels left out, although we've got lots of, you know, certainly the anti-angiogenics, as well as many of those other biologics we talked about have potential activity there. We've got to get to individualizing cancer and not just sorting it out by a couple of genes and proteins, but subdivide further. Where have I heard that before? Yeah. Every day, <laughs> <A huh? theme. laughs> Personalized, individualized treatments. So I think it's not just the tumor biology, though, but I think we are entering an era, as we just touched on, with the whole pharmacogenomics, yeah. where the patient's inheritance is how they metabolize drugs is going to be as important as to the tumor characteristics. And if you don't put both together, you're not going to get the right combination.